Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, you're very welcome along to this week's episode of the Group Chat Podcast. I am news correspondent Sarah King and I'm joined by one member of the group this week. It is political correspondent. <laughs> it's not, not very group. It might be a chat, but it's not very group I mean, this it's, week. Yeah, it's there's less tools. group, more chat, right. I would say, this week. Um, it's not the first time people have heard from us this week, Gav. No. Uh, so obviously, if you're watching us on, on TV uh, on Wednesday night on Virgin Media 1, this is obviously our first time seeing you uh, since last week. But if you are a subscriber to our podcast feeds, uh, you will have heard from us on Monday, of course, because we had that sit that extended interview with Tom Hand, uh, the father of the missing eight-year-old Emily Hand, which of course yeah. is remarkable because we understood until a few days ago that yeah. Emily Hand was was dead and had died about a month ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that all actually erupted, that, that that chat that we had with him on Monday morning, that all came about pretty suddenly. Yeah, it was Sunday evening. I was um, I was out and about just running a few errands on Sunday evening. I got a text from an Irish Israeli girl who I've dealt with a few times covering the story over the last month. And she just texted me and said, Emily uh, isn't dead. I was obviously totally shocked and I, you know, I got back to her I said, are you sure? I thought that this had been, you know, that she was, she had been pronounced dead weeks ago and she said no, that obviously when they'd searched the kibbutz um, there was no trace of Emily. They had reason to believe that she was being held hostage inside Gaza. So with all of that said, we wanted to speak to somebody who would have experience in terms of hostage negotiations, someone who's a mediator and we have been speaking to Oliver McTurnan. Um, now Oliver has an extensive experience in this over 20 years, Gavin. I mean, mm. you know, and he talks a little bit about that. Yeah, so in the interview that we're about to play you in just a couple of minutes, um, he is the co-founder of a group called Forward Thinking, which is an activist group for peace in, in the Middle East and some sort of solution between um, Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, he'll mention the case of uh, Gilad Shalit, who is a former member of the Israeli Defence Forces, mm. who was kidnapped uh, by Hamas in 2006 and was held captive for five years. They weren't permitted any visits by the Red Cross or the Red Crescent or anything of the sort. But Oliver was eventually involved in securing his release safely and healthily uh, five years on. So he's, he's a man who has a track record of securing uh, gains like this. He was certainly a very interesting person to speak to. Absolutely. I thought what was really interesting is he tells us about the relationship that he has with people within Hamas, people that he's known for 20 years. Mm. And he sort of gives us an insight into the mindset of the people who are holding people like Emily hostage. So with that, we began by asking him, how likely does he think it is that Emily will be released in the near future? Well, no one can guarantee that now with the level of the bombardment and fighting inside Gaza. But that said, my deepest empathy goes out to the Tom and to all the relatives as the hostages. Um, the problem I see is they've set themselves incompatible targets, the, the Israeli authorities. And I think that's partly because they're probably still in a traumatized state after the 7th of October. But to state for one that your goal is, the military goal is to eliminate Hamas, and then secondly, to rescue the hostages. As I said, I think those are incompatible because to see the safe delivery of the hostages, I really do think you need a ceasefire because it'll take time to coordinate a process of handover, um, even if it's without conditions. You just cannot move people around in this, in these circumstances safely. What are the logistics, though, in terms of that type of negotiation, Oliver? What, what's been your experience of this type of work? 
Well, my understanding at the moment is that there is no serious negotiations going on. Um, I think Qatar are trying to do its best by engaging in this issue with the leadership of Hamas that are living in Qatar, in Doha. But the, as I understand, the whole process is going through a third party, the U.S., and, you know, in those circumstances, it's, it's terribly difficult to come to understanding or agreement if if there's so many partners involved. Normally, uh, when we did the Shalik deal, it was kept very secret. It was just um, the same group of people you worked on with both sides. It created over the years an understanding and you you eventually, you know, came up with the result. In the present circumstances, in the height of hostilities, ongoing hostilities, um, that sort of negotiation is just impossible. And the certain urgency also of the present situation puts added pressure. So whilst I do think that it's in the interests of Hamas and those holding the hostages in Gaza to keep them safe. And I think they will do that. Um, Gilad Shalit was kept safe for five years um, because it, it, it's so important, especially the um, civilian hostages. Uh, I understood right from the beginning that was recognized as a mistake by Hamas and there was a willingness to hand over all the civilian hostages without any preconditions. The military hostages, um, and I explained the reasons behind it, I don't in any way endorse taking anyone hostage, but the thinking behind the military hostages were basically they were leveraged to um, bargain the, the um, release of Palestinian prisoners who otherwise wouldn't see freedom from Israeli jails. Um, in general, Oliver, and I appreciate this is a very sort of wide-ranging question, so it may not have a very simple answer, but in general, how do you go about trying to negotiate the release of a hostage without ultimately playing into the hands of those of you know Malfides who might have an ulterior motive? And how do you try to secure that sort of thing without ultimately getting into the territory of negotiating with terrorists? Well, I think... First of all, my motivation when I was invited by um, Gilad Shalit's father to explore if there was a channel, my motivation always is to save human life. And, and, and that's got to be the clear thing. As a negotiator, you're between two partners. And I describe my role very often as a postman. You, you know, you try and interpret the mind of one um, partner and the mind of the other partner, and you try to be the, someone who can communicate that. So uh, issues of mistrust, all of these things are part of it. But um, I think you have to develop, as a middle person, you have to develop uh, uh, transparency and trust with both sides. You can't start all the time questioning, questioning, doubting, so forth. You've just got to be open, transparent, practice integrity, and above all, you're not an information gatherer. So if you're asked questions that are not relevant to the negotiation, you've got to be disciplined enough to say, sorry, that's not my role. I'm not here to gather information or provide information. I'm here simply to see if an agreement can be reached that is mutually acceptable. 
When we spoke to Tom Hand, you know, we, we reflected on that interview that he'd given a couple of weeks ago uh, that everyone saw about him talking about a fate worse than death for his daughter, Oliver. You know, I don't want to sort of, you know, but too fine a point in it, but what these hostages are going through right now is incredibly difficult. What's your understanding of what's happening inside Gaza right now? Well, first of all, I could understand Tom's um, fears and anxieties for his daughter because he wouldn't have been familiar with why um, Hamas had this practice of taking soldier hostages. And um, this was something new, so naturally he was anxious understanding I think for the hostages themselves, it must be a true nightmare, because even though I think they will be protected for the reasons I said and and looked after for the reasons I said, the photographs we're getting and the accounts we're getting live from Gaza, from people we trust and people we know, the situation is beyond a a catastrophe. I think it's horrendous um, what people are suffering and the level of anxiety and trauma. And I I think that will in some way impact on the hostages. So when, please God, they are released and uh, hopefully, you know, all powers will come to their senses and say, we have to have a ceasefire and this will enable that to happen. I hope that they will be given the support and the help that they will need because they'll come out, I fear, in a very traumatised situation. Um, Oliver, you touched on the idea there a moment ago of there being some kind of uh, mutually agreeable terms under which people could be released. Uh, In circumstances like this where there was an assumption that Hamas was taking civilian hostages with a view to using them as makeweights for the release of Palestinian prisoners from the Israeli side. What would you have in mind by way of something that might be mutually agreeable to the two sides in this? Well, Gavin, I'll come back to, uh, to the distinction between civilian hostages and military soldiers. Um, on the 9th of October, two days after the horrendous um, events of the 7th, I met with the very senior Hamas leader in Doha, and he clearly said to me, morally, it was unacceptable, the indiscriminate um, killing and taking hostages of civilians. And he indicated there was a willingness to um, release all of the civilians without any preconditions. Now, a week later, when I was passing through Doha again, he reiterated that commitment, but he made it very clear that it would be very difficult to do that with the level of hostility bombardment that was going on. And I, and I think that's genuine. I could under, I know Gaza very well. I frequently visit it. And I think that would be a genuine concern. The, the thinking, again, I, I think with the soldiers, they would want to use the, and I can't, read their minds or I'm not a spokesperson for them, but the way from my experience, I would say, I would think that they would want to use the soldiers to get some bargaining for a release of at least some of the long-term prisoners in Israeli jails who otherwise wouldn't see the light of day outside their prison. And it's interesting, I suppose, Oliver, to hear you talk about those conversations that you're having with people at such a high level within that organisation, because, you know, in so many ways, you know, we don't understand the the humanness of this in terms of who those individuals are that you deal with. You know, do these people, despite the fact that they're in the depths of of war and conflict, do they have a level of, of empathy and understanding for the people that they're holding hostage? 
I think they do, and all of them have their own families in Gaza. So there is a high level of anxiety, too, about the safety of the, uh, the Gaza. You know, Hamas is not an import into Gaza. It's part of the Palestinian people. It's a resistance movement with an Islamic reference, different from Fatah, which is a much more secular reference, different from some of the independent groups. Um, you know, so Gaza and, and the West Bank, Palestine, Palestinian territories have a, a total mix of resistance groups, but they're all part of it. They're all human beings. And the one motive, whether they're Fatah resistance groups or, or independent or Islamic Jihad or Hamas, is to end occupation. And as Hamas said in 2017, but it's never referred to in this crisis, they had issued a very clear political statement saying that they would accept 67 borders. And um, I'm afraid we've in light of the horrendous, and I stress that, the horrendous and morally reprehensible attacks on the 7th of October because of the high level of uh, civilian, unacceptable level of civilian casualties and taking of hostages, that's being lost sight of. But, you know, when the, the shooting, the killing ends, we're going to have to sit down again. And I, I would love to see um, America and the, the power brokers learn from our Irish experience and our Irish ex experiences, you will not take violence out of a political conflict unless you have an inclusive um, process. And it was when we um, started an inclusive process in Ireland that we got the Good Friday Agreement and put the um, the whole Irish issue on a political track rather than a, a one of violence. And I think that's the lesson that has to be brought here. Um, if I may just add, um, Queen Rania, in her interview with CNN, I think put it in focus when she said Hamas is not the root cause of this conflict, it's occupation. And I think that's what Israel and the um, global community, particularly America, have to face, get to the root cause. And we know that will only find a durable solution if the process they start includes all people. And that has to include Hamas, it's not going to be eliminated because it's, as I said, part of Palestinian resistance. Mm. Uh, that point about uh, the Irish experience is a very good one. Actually, I wanted to, to bring up with you the, the question of um, Ireland and whatever engagement it might have with Hamas, given that Hamas is still recognised as a terrorist body. But before I get to that, um, this is a, a slightly unusual situation in which any kind of negotiation there might be about the release of hostages is sort of happening in a live politically charged environment where obviously you've got a, an Israeli government that's under quite a lot of domestic pressure and we're in circumstances where there haven't been elections in Gaza for the guts of 20 years now. So how much is it a factor or is there any weight or any importance at all to how popular or impopular indeed Hamas might be among the people within Gaza? Well, there was a lot of speculation before this uh, recent outburst of violence that if elections were to happen, Hamas probably would not have won Gaza again. They may have got a majority in the West Bank, but um, it, even within Hamas, it's it's not a sort of monolithic movement. There, there is a lot of um, discussion, a lot of criticism of leadership. Um, you know, it's it's a, a movement that has a, 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 a 
numerous um, makeup of different attitudes and opinions. So we were, I was last in Gaza in July, and the whole discussion then right across the, the board, all of the Fatah, all of the different independent groups, was the need for municipal elections and the need for national elections. So I think it'd be very interesting. And it, to me, um, the first thing we have to do when this conflict is over, when, please God, sooner than later, there is a ceasefire and we start thinking about what about the day after, is to recognise it has to start with Palestinian elections, both in Ramallah and in Gaza. Those who are going to lead the Palestinian um, cause forward must have the mandate of the people, and neither group have that at the moment. There, uh, it's it's only can be achieved through elections. Two thousand and six was a real opportunity to put this conflict on a political process. What happened? America decided to impose. Um, quartet principles, which, you know, even Jonathan Powell, who was key in the um, Northern Ireland, the uh, Good Friday Agreement, um, Jonathan was then Blair's chief of staff. And he, he said to me, if those conditions had been put on the partners in the Irish process, we'd never have reached agreement. They were put there to keep Hamas out of the political process. Now we're seeing the consequences of those decisions. Oliver, if you were Leo Varadkar, if you were the Taoiseach and you were looking at the situation with an Irish citizen, looking at Emily Hand and asking yourself, you know, how do you go about getting her out? What would you do if you were him in this situation? How is he going to handle this? I I honestly think the only way that he can do is have the courage to call for a ceasefire, to use the Irish lobby in America to convince Biden that this is the only way to save her life and the only way to save the lives of 2.3 million people in, in Gaza. You know, there's been a lot of talk and Biden, President Biden talks about the humanitarian pause. Well, what effectively is a humanitarian pause? It's a misnomer. Because basically we're saying, OK, let's treat people now. Let's feed people. But they may well die later once the hostilities resume. I think what we've got to say is an end to the hostilities. This There'll be no military solution to the Palestinian um, situation so long as occupation continues. Let's now start a genuine, inclusive political process. I would, based on our Irish experience again, I would hope that that's what the Taoiseach would be leading on. And I think Ireland has a, a this is Ireland's moment to stand up and say, look, we, we, we've, we've learned things painfully. And now we have an opportunity of sharing that in this particular situation and taking a global lead on it. And I, I just love to see Ireland do that. Um, Oliver, I don't like to finish on something of a downer, but you know, if you mentioned the idea of this only being solvable if America pushes for a ceasefire, we've seen at that UN vote inside the last couple of weeks, the US is a very key ally for Israel and a very small minority of countries that were opposing any kind of a ceasefire or any kind of a terminology along those lines. Um, in that light, how much worse do you think this could get or how far away are we from people heading towards some kind of peaceful solution to this? I, I think it's already at a horrendous um, level of, of death. And when we think there are over 10,000 people dead, nearly 4,000 of those children, 
26,000 people injured. Now, I I saw today a, a genuine report from a doctor in one of the hospitals describing the conditions and talking about there's going to be a real pandemic. So God knows at the moment how many people are going to die as a consequence of this. It's not just the people who are killed outright, but the 26,000 who have been um, maimed or, or now suffering from all sorts of um, conditions because of the lack of hygiene, the lack of water, the lack of fuel, all of these things and the horrendous conditions in which doctors are um, working. I Honestly, it, it can just get worse. That, that It'll increase in numbers, but the horror of what it happens couldn't be worse. Oliver McTernan, thank you so much for joining us on the group chat this week. We do really appreciate your insights. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you very much. So some of you will be familiar with the Jason Corbett uh, murder investigation and the case involving Molly Martins, his wife and her father, Tom Martins. So, Gavin, look, just to kind of bring you up to speed a little bit on it and we'll get a full recap in a moment from Martin Wall, who is the Washington correspondent for the Irish Times, who very kindly uh, spoke to me earlier on. This is a case that goes back as far as August of 2015. Jason Corbett, um, again, Martin will give us the, the recap on that. But just the reason we're talking about it this week and the reason it's on the news agenda in the last two weeks is because the sentencing hearing for Molly Martins and her father is underway in North Carolina. And at the time that we record, uh, Martin was going into another day of hearings. Okay. So just want to be clear that uh, at the time we're recording, there is no outcome in that sentencing hearing. But uh, if we do get one, we'll obviously bring it to you across all our social channels. Just want to take a quick listen, first of all, to Martin, just giving us a recap on how this case came about. Jason Corbett, a businessman from Limerick, was beaten to death. His uh, f- father-in-law had hit him with a baseball bat and his wife had hit him with a brick in, in their bedroom. The defendants, they were charged, the Molly Martins and her father Thomas were charged and they claimed that there was, they acted in self-defence. They claimed there had been a row on that night that Jason Corbett had had his hands around the neck or throat of his wife and that they feared for their lives and that it, it was in that in, the, in that context he had been killed. Uh, Molly Martins and Tom, Thomas Martins were subsequently jailed. They were convicted by a court in North Carolina and were jailed for between 20 and 25 years. However, they served uh, in, in excess of three years in prison. However, a, an appeals court subsequently quashed the convictions and maintained that the judge in the original trial had erred and that had he had uh, he had made rulings that undermined their ability to mount a defence. Okay, this is all a, a quite complex saga, but basically what it boils down to now, if I understand it right, is yeah. that they've taken a plea deal. Yeah, so what so exactly is then happening in courts in the middle of all this process? So there was meant to be a whole retrial that was meant to happen at the start of November. And then on the 30th of October, uh, a hearing heard that they were accepting this plea deal. So basically it was them accepting responsibility for the role that they played in the killing of Jason Corbett. So to be clear, um, Molly Martins and her father accepting that. Molly Martins saying that she had pleaded no contest to voluntary manslaughter. Her father, who actually is a former FBI agent, uh, Tom Martins, pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter of his son-in-law. So the sentencing hearing has been going on since last week. The Irish Times, Washington correspondent Martin Wall has been sitting through that. And he's going to tell us a bit about what's been heard because a lot of people who may have picked up headlines along the way on this 
this has gotten quite in depth. Mm. They are obviously in a situation where the Martins want to introduce as many mitigating factors as possible because obviously they want to find to reduce, their to reduce their sentence. Yeah, of course. So um, a lot of the detail that's come out in this has been very difficult, particularly for the Corbett family to listen to. So Martin's going to take us through some of that now. Yeah. Essentially, the Martins defence councils have been arguing that there were in fact mitigating factors. They contended uh, quite controversially that um, that that Molly Martins had been in a, an abusive marriage. That they maintained that uh, Jason Corbett had inflicted verbal, physical, and in some, and uh, allegations of sexual abuse in relation against his wife. The perhaps more controversially, they Molly Martins maintained through her counsel that Jason Corbett's first wife. Margaret Corbett, who was the mother of the two children, their two children, was was actually murdered. The Irish health authorities have maintained that Margaret Corbett had died from an asthma attack in 2006. However, Molly Martins maintained that she feared that her, that she maintained that she believed that her husband had actually killed his first wife and that the same fate may befall her. That was the backdrop to the case that was uh, the, the, to the sentencing hearing. The, the Margaret Corbett's family, the family of, of Jason Corbett's first wife, have strongly refuted this in a statement issued in Ireland l- late last week and contended that it was um, that that her that, that Margaret Corbett had been had had experienced asthma for many years and that her death came about from an asthma attack. The issue was, was that prosecutors had commissioned an expert report from a medical expert in, uh, in from Kentucky in nearby near North Carolina. And the Kentucky expert had strongly criticized the autopsy report that had been carried out in Ireland. And on foot of those criticisms was not in a position to fully refute the arguments being made by Molly Martins Corbett in relation to the death of Jason Corbett's first wife. So that was a very, they were very controversial elements that formed part of the background to this case. On the other hand, prosecutors maintained that Molly Martins Corbett was, as they said, struggled with the truth. They set out that she had told a litany of lies to friends and associates and acquaintances in North Carolina, including that she was the actual birth mother of Jason Corbett's youngest uh, youngest uh, child. That is, in essence, the backdrop to where the judge now will have to make a decision as to what sentence should apply and should Molly Martins and her father, Thomas Martins, go back to prison or should they be released on probation? So Gavin, I just wanted, there's a lot in that. Yeah. There's a lot in that. And uh, like the detail that's come out in the last little while, you know, and we'll get to in a moment, like Jason Corbett is obviously not in a position to defend himself on mm. that. It uh, doesn't have a voice in all of this. His family are in court. It's very difficult for his two children, Jack I, I was and Sarah. Say, I can only imagine that yeah. for, for them to be hearing now this suggestion put out mm-hmm. there with the veil of, of, you know, proper procedure in a court to have yeah. it alleged that their father killed their mother when that was never... 
the family's the case. belief at no. all. And, and it's remarkable. Irish investigators, it was never the case. It was never suggested prior to all of this. Um, and, you know, just to add further background, I suppose, for people who are coming to this case, you know, asking how did he meet Molly Martins? Well, actually, after his wife died, uh, baby Sarah at the time was very, very young and he needed some help. And it was actually through uh, an au pairing sort of arrangement that Molly Martins came to live with Jason Corbett in Ireland. Mm. And they began a, a personal relationship on foot of that. Um, and then they subsequently moved to the United States. They went back and they had this home, this beautiful home in North Carolina. And, um, you know, it, it had been said by the Corbett family, certainly, that they felt that the relationship um, was somewhat breaking down, that Jason wanted to move back home with the children. There was also, um, you know, it's been said in the public domain before that Molly Martins had wanted to adopt the children. And you heard there in Martin Wall's clip, you know, that Molly Martins has been described as somebody who did have a loose relationship with the truth and that, in fact, she had told people that she was the birth mother of Sarah, which of course wasn't true, wasn't right. in fact true. So there was the, no doubt that the relationship was incredibly complicated and that's been laid bare uh, throughout all of this since mm. 2015. And in fact, um, for people who are interested, I suppose, in, in learning more about this case, you know, there's been many uh, interviews given, in fact, by Molly Martins and her father as well over time. And, and of course, the Corbett family have written a book as well. So there's a lot of detail out there. But just want to go back to what's happening at the sentencing hearing again, because like I said, Martin Wall is clear in saying that um, with everything that's been going on in court, there is no voice to defend Jason yeah. Corbett in all of this. He has no voice in court. The prosecutions, the, 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 the role of the prosecutors is to try to secure a conviction. And, to, and in this context, to secure a aggravate a sentence, uh, uh, what they maintain there's either were aggregating factors involved in this case. The aggregating factors were the presence of the two children in the house on the night of the of the of the of the killing. There is no voice for the reputation or the interest of Jason Corbett in the court per se. So when these allegations were made in relation to the death of Margaret Corbett, the it was the family, it was her family in Ireland who made the statement defending, essentially defending Jason Corbett and maintaining that she did in fact die of an asthma attack as had been found by Irish health authorities in 2006. It's just such an extraordinarily complex set of circumstances mm. with all the, these new allegations being introduced now at this point when they're trying to debate how long the Molly Martins and her father might ultimately serve, if they do at all, uh, serve any yeah. more time in jail. Um, so at the time, as you said, as we're recording this, the the there was a prospect of the jury being sent out today or, or all that process beginning. But we obviously are recording this not knowing what the outcome is. So mm -hmm. at this time, do we know how long it might take for all that to ultimately conclude or where do we stand? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's still, as you say, we're almost afraid to sort of commit something on tape at the moment because mm. it's still unfolding. But we can take a listen to what Martin said as he was heading into court today about, this is crucially about what the sentencing might look like. I mean, what's the longest possible time versus the shortest possible time? He gave us a bit of an insight into that. The judge said that in, for people with the worst type of records, and this will not apply to the Martins, they, there would be a possibility given the, the, you know, under North Carolina, it could be up to 17 years in prison. The prosecution have maintained that nine would be what the maximum they'd be, they would be seeking in this uh, in this case. Obviously, nine years, even if it was applied, would be a lot less than the 20 to 25 years that had been originally um, uh, set down in the original sentence for second degree murder. On the other hand, it would go at the at the other end of the scale. If the judge found that there were extreme mitigating factors, they could be released on supervised probation. It's a big story locally. 
uh, in North Carolina, not necessarily nationally. However, there are there is talk of documentaries, TV documentaries being um, in the offing in relation to this case. So I don't think even when the sentences are set down by the judge, I don't think from a media perspective that we've heard the last of this. I think there will be further um, this this story will be told again in documentaries uh, in the months, months and years ahead. Yeah, so it seems that this is, you know, ongoing and, and mm. results expected in the next couple of days. Um, the corporate family, as they have been in court and we do understand that they are going to speak after the sentencing. So uh, we will hear from them in the coming days. Thank you very much to Martin Wall from mm. the Irish really Times, Washington it. correspondent. Really appreciate him taking the time to talk to us. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I know that I'm saying this with some irony as I set the timer going on a smartphone sitting in front of me, uh, but you will have seen the news this week, Zara, that the Department of Education is now undertaking a national policy where they want to discourage parents to buy of buying away from buying smartphones mm-hmm. uh, for children of primary school age. If people who haven't seen the news, this was proposed mm-hmm. by the Minister for Education, Norma Foley, who believes that some of the areas in which this has been done on a voluntary basis, like Greystones, that it's a good model and that it now should be worked out nationwide. Now, as it happens, you covered this in yeah. Greystones when it was rolled out first. It was in Greystones, actually. I was in a school in Taranure there, God, I, I, I say a couple of weeks ago, but it was probably a couple of months ago, admittedly. And I spoke to kids at primary school age, I think they were sort of eight, nine, ten mm. years of age. And they were really interesting, Gavin, right? Because they talk about getting the mobile phone. They talk about, you know, sort of like feeling a bit left out and their pals are getting a phone and all that kind of stuff. But actually, one of the little girls said to me that actually she finds it really stressful owning a mobile phone, that actually sometimes she hands over her phone to her mum and she'll say to her, mum, will you just check it and make sure that everything is okay? Because she's had so many warnings and so many things about don't talk to strangers and don't engage and Mm. that actually... She's worried there's some danger there that she doesn't know. quite stressful, actually. And I thought that was, you know, in some ways I thought it was actually... Uh, very mature of her to admit that actually mm. and I thought she said you know sometimes I just give my phone to my mum because I want her to make sure that everything is okay Wait, which is a really striking insight for someone of that age to have because you yeah. would assume outwardly that if if everyone else has one that actually the idea of getting a smartphone and being part of the conversations that you were worried you were missing otherwise or, or missing out on the phone you're the one person who isn't in the class who's in the WhatsApp group or whatever it might be yeah. you'd imagine that it would be a very exciting thing to suddenly have that smartphone or that whole other avenue opened up in your life but evidently 
not so in cases like that. No, and do you know what I was interesting as well is they were saying they like to make phone calls to one another. That they, like they like to oh, text wow. a little bit. Yeah, which I'm delighted about yeah. because as everyone who knows me knows, I am want to yeah. bring back the phone call. I think. Well, no, you don't. What you just want is a series of voice memos exchanged over. No, and back no, and no I don't calls. send them as much anymore. Now I'm a phone call person, but it's great to hear that the younger generation they love the idea of. Phone. But mm. you see, when you think back to when we were kids and you were tying up the home phone, yeah, you were tying up the landline, <laughs> or with the dial-up internet. Do you know what I mean? Same, yeah. Like, yeah, and your parents be like, "You still on the phone? Were you not in school all day together, and you're still talking to other?" two hours mm. on the phone when you come home that like that was kind of our time for that and it's you know it seems certainly from the kids that I spoke to they like that sort of chat they yeah. like to get home from school and have a chat so it's it's an interesting policy and obviously that each to their own as to whether parents decide this is something they want to do and actually I suspect there'll be a lot of communities that will take this up one thing which is interesting and it's opened up a lot of political scrutiny about all of this is people questioning whether the Department of Education are the right people to be taking this up because ostensibly a lot of primary schools are know a bit about this. My wife works in that sector. Yeah. There's basically no primary school that actively allows or encourages the use of smartphones on the school premises. They're like, no, this is a matter for what you do at home. So the schools are already sort of saying, well, you know, what happens at home is not the purview of schools. Mm-hmm. So like, why are you involving us? And because it happened to be in Greystones where they now have this town-wide policy and it was done through the local parents' councils, that Norma Foley has now come along and said, oh, if the parents' councils are the people to do it, then we should encourage or enable parents' councils nationwide to do this. That kind of means that you're involving the schools in trying to police things that don't happen on school right, premises. Yeah, yeah. And to be honest, there's a, a little bit of me which is a little cynical about how all this is being done. Like, I think it, it's a fair enough idea. And if, like, I'm not sure if it really needs a cabinet memo or if it needs to be official government <laughs> policy to say don't buy it. Like, if the government thinks you shouldn't buy them, just ban them. Just ban the sale of it or just to say that it's an offence to buy it with the purpose of supplying it to a 12-year-old. Just why, why don't you do like that? Like in the same way they would with a cigarette. Yeah. Like if, if you think that it's it's that much of a societal danger to, to kids of that age, why, why not just ban it? But the thing I think is, is more telling is because it's coming from the Department of Education and it's kind of been done through this banner of schools rather than through the Department of Children, mm-hmm. which is the, the predominant state body responsible for the... the welfare of young people or the Department of Communications which is responsible for the networks or even the Department of Media like all those other departments would all ought to have something to say about you know what children should be exposed to what kind mm-hmm. of content is made available to them and the fact that it's coming through the Department of Education to be honest I'm, I'm a little bit cynical about how Can that's supposed you, to work I think the you... minister is saying something popular that she can't really provide for that she's not the best person right. to pursue okay okay because ultimately like the, the state admits that it can't set policies for schools and all schools already have pretty much a zero phones policy anyway. So the state says, right, well, if every board of management says you can't have phones on the premises and the department can't do anything to countermand that, it can't supersede them because the boards of management are the people responsible for managing schools. Yeah. Then what is Norma Foley's business? Absolutely not. Like, I just, I don't understand why it's, why it's her purview at all. So it's a fine policy if you want to do that. I just don't know why it's hers. So do you think then essentially what's happened here is that really it's just kind of started a conversation but nothing's actually really changed? I, I To be honest, the, the cynic in me and, I, and I'm often, I professionally required to park my cynicism for a lot of the stuff that I cover <laughs> but also I'm, I'm generally not too cynical a person about all of this but I kind of wonder is a minister hopping on something which sounds popular and which a lot of parents might provide or think is a great idea so that she can take credit for its rollout even though to be honest A, it's not her field and B, it's not something that's really kind of, she has any power to do anyway. Like, I mean, I, I was there for the, the press conference on Tuesday where she was officially announcing this was approved by cabinet. And what it effectively amounts to is that the state is providing a template letter 
for parents or for boards of management or parents councils to send around saying, would you agree with the idea? So that's, of sorry, that's the rollout. It's the letter. That's the rollout. We're giving you a template letter and we're encouraging you to send this letter to your members with the hope that your parents' association will adopt a de facto ban. Okay. And like, do, do schools have nothing bigger to worry about? Does the department have nothing bigger to worry about? Like, I know it's it's possible to do more than one thing at a time, but like, there are so many teaching jobs that are still vacant right now uh, because people can't afford to live in Dublin or whatever it is, or maternities that you can't cover. Like, could the government just not be doing other things rather than trying to implement a ban that it can't implement? Do you think it's a wild use of time? The Beatles thing happened, I think it was like a week ago now, so we're a little bit behind the curve on the Beatles thing, mm. but... I didn't really pay much attention to what okay. happened, if I'm very honest. So the, tell me the, what the Beatles thing being that the Beatles have a new song out, yeah. despite half of the members being dead. Yes, which is and, fascinating. And having been dead for quite a while. Yeah. So there's a new track out by the Beatles now, which features all four members of the Beatles, despite John Lennon being dead over 40 years and George yeah. Harrison having died quite a while ago. Um, the last time that three of the four Beatles got together was in the mid-90s and they were trying to work on this song that included archive audio of John Lennon singing from a demo tape where he was playing the piano. Which I think is quite cool. That's cool. So the premise is quite cool, but I think it it kind of opens a Pandora's box that a lot of people aren't too happy with. So what they've done now is that AI has has progressed on so much, we've discussed it here before, Mm. that they're now able to better isolate John Lennon's vocals from that tape. So where previously they were like, it's too hard to isolate his vocal and not have a like a crummy sounding piano in the backdrop. Mm-hmm. Now they've been able to isolate his vocals quite cleanly. They've got a guitar track that George Harrison recorded in the 1990s before he died. Paul McCartney plays bass, Ringo Starr plays drums and the four of them are playing together on this track. And the track is called Now and Then and it's a little bit about like missing loved ones. So it's like quite a poignant Yeah, note. so Gavin played me clips before we came in actually and it is quite nice. Yeah, it and, is lovely. And, and the ostensible thing is that this is like putting a lid on the Beatles catalogue. The Beatles, you know, are obviously no longer around anywhere but this is the last ever Beatles song that there will be. And that's quite a nice idea particularly yeah. when the subject matter is as it is. But it's kind of raised, like I said, a Pandora's box where people are now debating, well, first of all, will this ultimately be the last Beatles track or will the success of this pave the way for more archival stuff to be dug up and for somebody to put it together? But then also, if you can go a step further and say, if AI was capable of isolating this John Lennon uh, vocal track Mm -hmm. from a song he never released then what's to stop AI coming along and putting together music from some other band that the band chose not to release at the time? And is there a point at which you should just sort of leave a musician's catalogue as it is and not go digging around trying to find more stuff for the sake of making a quick book? Because also, was there some conversation around people being able to generate songs with someone's voice after they're gone? Yeah. That's quite creepy, I think. Well, because this is the debate that's been going on in Hollywood for the last few months, is that if it's possible to basically use extras, like, you know, there was a concern that if you're a background artist Mm. in in a film, that they could use your face and then basically generate an extra afterwards and take you out of that, that... that industry. Well, if you, you could do the same for an actor, you know, we've, we've talked here before about deep fakes. It's possible to yes. generate a speech by some Leo Varadkar, Joe Biden type. So the, it, it naturally follows. You could just basically artificially regenerate a musician. Like I, I would love, I would love an Oasis reunion and a new Oasis album. But would you love it if it wasn't real? Like if it well, was this, AI? See, this is my point. I don't want somebody to just do some sort of trickery and say, here's a template Noel Gallagher song, yeah. verse, bridge, chorus, verse, bridge, chorus, instrumental, chorus, fade out. And Liam Gallagher sings the vocals. I, I, I want the band together. So, But if technology allows you to basically create something that sounds ostensibly like Oasis... Like, should you be able to do that? Or like, are we okay with reanimating bands that are literally half dead for the sake of 
providing new music. Well, the thing that struck me when we talked about this before we came in here and you showed me the video, right, was that you said to me, you're, I was like, oh, the video's a bit creepy. Like, it's a bit weird the way they've put them in. Like, yeah. they've inserted in like so the footage. They're, they're like acting or they're playing yeah. as a four piece. And then yeah. you were like, you were like, but how come you don't find it weird that like the, the audio ended? Yeah. Whereas I don't find that weird because I know that they did actually record that. Whereas I do find it weird to like insert, I don't like this hologram thing. In, I find that a bit mm. unnerving. Well, maybe if someone's alive, fine, but if someone's gone, I think inserting them in and sort of, I think that's quite weird. Yeah, like well, obviously the Beatles are, are slightly strange circumstances in that John Lennon was assassinated. So like there was always a prospect that maybe there may have been some reunion or they might have pulled together this material were it not for John dying. But you kind of have to act on the basis that the band, or at least John Lennon, chose not to put this out as a song. Mm. And there's plenty of musicians that have studio demos of songs that were never released. But are we going to get to a point where some musician dies, there's a big fan base that now has no new material, but you go back and salvage some stuff and put it out that they didn't want out there? Or, or what's worse, using AI to create this humanoid kind of music for stuff that you... Didn't want, you know, didn't I think it's an interesting kind of ethical quandary. Any musical acts that have gone dormant that you'd like to hear more from, AI or otherwise? Well, uh, having listened to Britney Spears' book in the last week, she has no intention of really creating new music at the moment, but I would love Britney Spears to release a new track. Well, so how would you feel then about some sort of AI Britney producing something that had all the, like, the sparkle, the magic of... No, I, like, I wouldn't be okay like, with that. I think it would Britney. be weird. Like, I would think that's kind of weird. Mm. Like, I would think it was weird, if I'm honest. But then, but there's there's that prospect now that somebody could dig up a Britney but the, studio But then it's demo. not real, it's a deep fake. Britney like it's not the real thing so then I'm a massive issue with that you could nearly argue that that's did, what this Beatles really before we go how did the Beatles song do in the charts did it get to number one I don't think it got to number one but I was actually very struck by it was that when I opened it up on Spotify yesterday it's not even the most played Beatles track on Spotify at the moment um, that oh. they, they did issue it as a double A side along with Love Me Do which was their first ever single so it's the Beatles' first single and last single in ah, single release, which is a quite cute. nice little poetic touch. That is cute. But it's, it's not the most popular Beatles song, which was also striking. Maybe it's a sign that people like the, the original stuff better than this modern reincarnations. <laughs> right. Well, there you there go. You go. <laughs> there you go. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for some further releases from the Beatles. Let, let us know what other material <laughs> bands you'd like to have reanimated for future uh, ostensible stuff. Let us know on our socials. <gasps> Thank you so much for joining us in the group chat this week. Uh, less a group, but more a one-to-one chat this week. Please no but, chat, uh, Thank you, political correspondent Gavin Wright. Thank you, news correspondent Zara King. Okay, we'll chat to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye.